This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. All right. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for attending today's discussion, uh, War in Ukraine, What's Next? Um, this event is made possible by uh, a number of co-sponsors at UC Berkeley, including the Goldman School of Public Policy, the Center for Studies in Higher Education, the Institute of Slavic, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies, the Institute of European Studies, and the Center for Security and Politics. Um, I'm Igor Cherikov, Senior Researcher at the Center for Studies in Higher Education, and I'm thrilled to introduce um, the, what is for sure to be an uh, engaging and impactful discussion. Um, a few housekeeping notes uh, be, before we get started. So the conversation will be an hour long, uh, and we'll be collecting questions from the audience uh, throughout, the, throughout this event. And so for those of you who are in person, and I'm happy to see uh, many people here today despite of the rain, uh, you should have received a note card uh, on your way to uh, registration. And um, so you can pass it down uh, to the staff um, and uh, with a written with a written question, and uh, for anyone on our live stream, um, welcome. Please submit your questions via the Google form that was provided, along with a live stream link. Um, and um, while there will be no time, unfortunately, for public comments, we encourage you to share to share your questions. Uh, I would like to ask those of you who are in the in the in the room uh, to uh, take a moment to uh, make sure your phones are on silent. Uh, and and now with that housekeeping notes over, uh, I would like to uh, introduce our speakers today. Uh, Ina Sofsun is a member of Parliament in Ukraine. Uh, as a member of Parliament, she serves on uh, on the Committee of Energy, Housing, and Communal Services, and focuses on the issues such as. Uh, educational reform, uh, the promotion of green energy, gender equality, and LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, the former first deputy minister of education and science of Ukraine, Sofson is currently a lecturer at the Kiev School of Economics and Kiev Mohila Academy. Uh, I'm also proud to share uh, that uh, Ina is a former Fulbright Scholar at our center, at the uh, Center for Studies in Higher Education, and we're very happy to um, have her back on campus. Um, Yuri Gorodnichenko is an economist at the Quantage uh, Presidential Professor of Economics here at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, previously the chairman of the International Academic Board of the Kiev School of Economics, Gornichenko is also uh, co-author of a recent report titled A Blueprint for the Reconstruction of Ukraine. Uh, this report outlines a uh, potential recovery program for Ukraine uh, after the war. Uh, and finally, we have uh, the Honorable Janet Napolitano. Uh, she is a former president of the University of California, former Secretary of Homeland Security, and former Governor and Attorney General of Arizona. Uh, today, we are thrilled uh, to have her uh, as a professor of public policy at the Goldman School and also a director of uh, the new Center for Security and Politics. Uh, please join me in welcoming our guests. All right, it's good to see everybody. Um, Ina, I think we'll begin with you. Uh, uh, you just arrived a few days ago from Kiev. Um, uh, what's it like? Give us a sense of what, what is going on, how are people getting along, what are you seeing, hearing, etc. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, and I'll try to explain what it's like living uh, uh, under these conditions. Uh, literally uh, 35 minutes ago, my phone went blaring, and that was the air raid alert. Uh, that meant that there is a missile or a drone that was uh, going in direction of Kyiv. 
And uh, what does that mean? Uh, it can mean nothing, so because they're just seeing the missile going in one direction. It can end up in any other city, or it can end up in Kyiv. And you can never be 100% sure about that. And uh, those air raid alerts can happen uh, every day. They can, we have had days when we were having air raid alerts like five times a day. And that basically means you have to go into hiding. But the reality also is that life goes on, so you cannot really be hiding like half of your life in, in shelter, right? You cannot be doing that. So typically people are just trying to follow what we all know now as a two walls room. So in case there is air raid alert, you just need to hide like deep inside your house, uh, like in your bathroom or wardrobe or anything. And uh, yeah, so that you're at least not near the windows. That is the very basic rule. Uh, and the reality is that this is the rule that my 10-year-old son Martin knows about. But that is what he does. When, and sometimes I have to wake up him like in the middle of the night and say, like, hey, you have to go at least hide in the wardrobe because that is what, uh, you know, things can happen. And uh, uh, sometimes it gets much more dangerous. Uh, like on October 10th, that was the biggest attacks uh, in Kiev. That is when... Uh, we woke up, uh, and I was about to take him to school when I read on the news that uh, there are explosions in Kyiv. Uh, and at first I thought like, okay, we can still hide in the bathroom. Um, then I actually heard some explosions myself. And I realized I should probably go to the bomb shelter, which in our case is the closest metro station. And uh, then I've seen myself, I was running around trying to gather stuff like, like you know, something to sit on and some water and something to eat because you don't know how long that will last. Uh, I was running around and I've seen my son and he looks at me and he says, Mom, am I going to die? And, and that is something like this question because my son has spent the first half a year of the war in the Western Ukraine, so he was not dealing with that too much, but uh, he's back to Kiev now, he goes to school, he goes to bomb shelters every time there are air raid alerts. But this was the first time he actually heard the explosions themselves and he actually had to, you know, mom, am I going to die? And I had to calm him down while my heart was bumping, you know, all the time. And I said to him, you know, you remember mom and dad told you we'll keep you safe, we're doing everything fine, no? we just go to the bomb shelter. The scariest two minutes walk in my life from there, you know, when hearing explosions and everything, going to the bomb shelter. And then on the way to the bomb shelter, he calmed down and then he said, Mom, are those the regular bombs or the nuclear bombs? And I got, I got really scared because I thought that he's panicking. And I said, no, sweetie, it's okay, it's regular bombs, don't worry. <laughs> and, and he looks at me half disappointed and I don't understand what is happening at that point. And, and he says, because you know, if it's nuclear bombs, I know what to do because we learned that at school. And he was, you know, he was a 10-year-old who was proud to tell me that he learned something at school and he can share that. Um, but, but that is the, the very sad reality of, of the everyday life uh, in Ukraine. And now when there is air raid alert, I got a, a, a picture of, of my son hiding in the bathroom from, from his father um, because that is what he needs to do. But that is me in Kyiv, and Kyiv is relatively safe, apart from those, uh, you know, attacks on energy infrastructure, we shall probably talk about that a bit later. But the situation is so much worse for people uh, living under occupation, or those close to them, to the front line. Because, particularly people under occupation, it's, um, I think you have all seen the, the images and the data and all this information. I'm sitting in the, in the special commission created by the parliament on investigation of sexual crimes, uh, happened um, you know, during the, the military conflict, uh, you know, my experience has nothing to do with the experience of those uh, women and children who suffered sexual violence uh, by, by Russian soldiers. Or even those who didn't, I've read a story on Instagram of one uh, young woman, she's, uh, she's 20 or 21, she was a student in Kharkiv, my native city, and, and she, she thought that being in Kharkiv was not safe, so she decided to move to her parents' place in Izum which you might have read about in the news because it fell under Russian occupation. So she was basically, uh, she, she was there for five months under occupation. They don't have any, any internet service, so they don't know what is happening outside of, of, uh, you know, of, of the town. And her parents were hiding her in the sofa, inside the sofa, under the cushions, every time the Russian soldiers were passing by just to save her from, um, uh, from rape. 
and, and that is the reality that we're living in. So uh, it's, it's very scary. I'm trying to joke about this sometimes because that is the survival mechanism. But I guess one last thing I will say is that it's extremely scary and it's, it's everyday life for all of us. And uh, uh, every day I have to, you know, to worry if I will, will be alive by the end of the day. But the most difficult part, of course, is uh, every single morning I wake up and I text to my partner who's um, uh, in the army and I ask him if he is alive. And that is uh, the scariest part of all of this. And, uh, and I don't know when I, my life will get back to normal, when we would be able to be back together, when my son would not be able to, you know, not being afraid of the bombs and all of that. So that is um, not very, you know, inspiring, but, but realistic uh, situation in Ukraine. That's what we wanted to hear about. Um, Yuri, uh, listening to, to that and given uh, uh, your work, what is your assessment of the war on Ukrainian society and uh, its economy and so forth? Uh, <clears throat> you know, economists are often portrayed as cold-blooded and, you know, just caring about numbers. And so I'll start with some numbers, but it's, it, it's really as scary and, and painful as Ina said. Um, you know, this, around this, uh, you know, sometime in the summer when you take a, snowshot, a snapshot of how much Ukraine was occupied, you look at roughly 20% of the country. This is roughly 40% of Italy, more than a third of Germany. So think about this as, as an economic shock, not just human, humanitarian shock, but an economic shock. And so right there you have a huge economic uh, loss, right? So GDP is going to contract by 30 to 50 percent. The unemployment rate is more than 35 percent. Uh, inflation is projected to, to reach 30 percent by the end of the year. Um, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge shock. You know, millions of people fled the country, left their homes. And, and so it's very hard to run economy in these conditions. You know, when you think about COVID and all the challenges we had at the time, this is nothing relative to what Ukraine has to deal with now. Um, you think about the Great Depression and how bad the life was, you know, when GDP contracted by 20%. It was a very terrible time in the U.S. many years ago. But think about this as, you know, times two and much more concentrated in time. And then you look at all sorts of other challenges that people have. Like they, they destroyed energy infrastructure. When, um, you know, it's really hard to run a business. You know, many of us here in California had an experience of living in a blackout for a few days. Uh, it was, you know, you kind of go to Stone Age very quickly. You, you kind of try to survive on, <laughs> uh, on your gas stove, you know, something basic. But now think about this in a different way. You know, it's not just, you know, three days in the summer. It's much darker, much colder. It's much less predictable. So it's much uh, more difficult to, to, to run a business with these conditions. And obviously the economy is under enormous pressure. But, you know, having said this, I think it's, it's amazing that Ukraine is still, you know, out there as an economy. Uh, the government is functioning, taxes are collected, um, people have jobs, you know, people have some, you know, social uh, safety net. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the infrastructure, the economic infrastructure is still there. Um, and, you know, economy is gradually recovering. It's, it's adapting to this new reality. But we should all appreciate that the size of the shock is just astronomical. You know, you mentioned, uh, uh, Yuri, a minute ago, the effect on the uh, power infrastructure. You know, maybe uh, you could uh, help us understand in, uh, what the impact um, has been. And, and then how are Ukrainians preparing for the winter? Yeah, that has been uh, really tough because those attacks on energy infrastructure, which started on October 10th, that was Monday, and then basically every Monday up until yesterday. Yesterday everybody was waiting for yet another set of, of uh, attacks. So they didn't happen for some reason, I don't know. Uh, but basically every Monday after that they have been bombing energy infrastructure. So at first they were bombing um, electricity uh, and heating stations. Then they, uh, last week they were bo bo uh, bombing the, the hydroelectrical elect power stations. Uh, which led actually to, uh, to, to big power shortages, uh, particularly around Kiev. Uh, I didn't have electricity for 12 hours at my home, 
which means uh, I didn't have electricity. That also meant I didn't have any water because the, the pump, which is electrical, couldn't function. I live on the 14th uh, floor, so going up no and down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no elevator, which is the, the slightest of the challenges. The biggest challenge was, of course, that uh, when there is no electricity, apparently, which we were not aware of the month ago, there is also no internet. So, I mean, I mean of course, there is no internet because you have, well, Wi-Fi is not connected, but there is no internet on your phone either. So you basically... Like imagine me working from, I typically work from, from my home because we are not advised to stay in the parliament for obvious reasons. And my team also works from home, so we coordinate online. And then suddenly, like, I don't have electricity. I don't know, they don't have electricity. or oh, they do, but I wouldn't have a way to know that because we cannot connect to each other. And, uh, um, and the situation is, is, is very dire. The Russians have damaged... Uh, not destroyed, but damaged, that's important uh, differentiation, damaged about 40% of energy infrastructure in Ukraine. Some of it can be restored relatively quickly, and, and actually people working in the energy sector are doing miracles, like seriously. In some cases, they would restore stations like in a matter of days. But then, of course, the new attacks come, so you just, just have to keep on doing that all the time. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we are very quickly running out of equipment to you know to to change the one that has been damaged or destroyed. So that is one of the big things that we are you know addressing the global community now is, is help us get those transformers, transformators. Transformers. Right. Transformers is very good, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, and um, and and all of that in order to fix our energy infrastructure, because right now life in Kiev is. Uh, it's very complicated because of those power shortages. I mean, we still get electricity, but it can get switched off for like four hours. So like you wake up and you don't have electricity. Theoretically, there is a schedule. So like you can look it online. <laughs> Just also. Yeah, you can go online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have to get online in order to do that. But, but you can look it online and theoretically you can adjust. But then when, when some new attack happens, they say, like, the schedule doesn't work any, anymore. We will be switching off, uh, you know, houses and businesses at any time possible because just we have to, you know, to keep the, the energy running to, to avoid the full blackout, which would be the, the terrible situation. And because of that, indeed, as Yuri said, it means that, uh, you know, businesses cannot function because, like, you know, very simple fact, I go to a hairdresser and she says, well, you are lucky because uh, we have light now, we have electricity and, and all... But yesterday I had four clients who came and I couldn't work with them and they had to leave. You know? and, and you never know when that will happen. And that is this unpredictability is the most difficult part to deal with. Um, so so this, this energy shortages, uh, particularly internet, and the unpredictability factor as the most complicated one. I mean, people can adjust living without electricity for four hours as long as you know which four hours that will be, right? But if you don't, then you cannot adjust to that. And, and how people are, have been preparing, well, of course, that really depends on, on your living situation. Because like, I live in a residential building. There is not really much I can do for my individual flat, right? Uh, so I just bought some, you know, which I'm actually bringing from the States, some power banks for my phone and my computer, and then some, uh, you know, some minor heating devices that I can adjust for my home. But it's not really a lot you can do if you're living in a residential building and you rely on, on, on central heating. Um, but um, the mayor of Kiev has suggested that in case we don't have any electricity for a couple of days, uh, people will have to evacuate. And that's three million people living in, in the city right now. And, um, um, Are there evacuation plans to cover them? The, the, the reality is that there is very little the government can do. And I think everybody is realistic about that. So what the mayor suggested is that just people have to think now of a plan B. Like, like my plan B is my parents live near Kiev, like 50 kilom kilometers, how much is that, like 40 miles uh, yeah, close, uh, yeah. uh, away from Kiev, and they have a private house, and I bought generator for them in, uh, in June because uh, they didn't have electricity in June because they were really close to the occupied territories and uh, their house has been damaged by the Russian shelling and, uh, and they didn't have electricity for a couple of, of weeks, actually. So I bought the generator for them in June, so I was well prepared. But people are trying to buy those for individual houses right now a lot, and that is, again, one of the things that we are asking the, the, the world to help with. Because people can move in with their friends and everything, you know, and I think that is what people are thinking about now in terms of preparation for the winter. 
You know, Yuri, when a country has experienced this kind of damage, uh, 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 it's almost a war of attrition in a, in a, in a way, uh, what will it take ultimately to be able to recover? You know, it's a great question. You know, initially Putin had this plan that it's going to be like a blitzkrieg when in three days you're going to capture Kiev, install the new government. It has been more than eight months. This war goes on and on and on. We're in a war of attrition. Uh, but, you know, in the war of attrition, it's not only the bravery of troops that matters. It's also who has a stronger economy, who can produce uh, more tanks, more planes, more rifles, more guns, who can muster more resources. And, you know, if Ukraine were alone in this war, it would be very difficult. It would be very difficult. Uh, but, you know, Ukraine is not climbing this mountain alone. We have a lot of support from the international community. And this is really the lifeline for the economy and for the war effort. Um, you know, people say, you know, Ukraine can't win this war. But, you know, you have to put this in the right perspective. You know, on the one hand, you have Russia, which is a much bigger country than, than Ukraine. But in the big scheme of sense, it's only 2% of global GDP. Now, when you look at the size of the U.S. economy or European Union, it's 10 times bigger each. So U.S. economy is 10 times bigger than Russian. Then the Russian economy, the European Union is 10 times bigger in terms of the economy. And then on the top of this, you also have Japan and other, you know, allied democracies. So when you look at kind of the totality of economic firepower you have in Russia and Ukraine and its allies, there is no question in my mind that there is no doubt that, you know, the Russian economy cannot win this war of attrition. Cannot win this war of attrition. So as long as Ukraine is going to receive economic and military aid, uh, we can definitely outlast uh, Russia. But, you know, I'm really hoping that uh, the Western democracies are going to double down on economic and military support. So it's not a very long war of attrition. Ideally, we want to finish this war as soon as possible. It's in everybody's interest. You know, um, uh, how do, um, and you're in government, um, uh, how are you keeping up the people's morale? Um, how, how do you, in the face of all of this damage and the unpredictability and all the rest, how do you keep the people um, energized? Well, that's a good, uh, good question because uh, the, the reality is that we all get, you know, feel depressed sometimes in this situation. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I can't do it anymore. And then, uh, then I think, uh, you know, I cannot give up. Well, for a mere reason, because my loved one is, is at war and I have to, to do everything possible, if not for the whole country, but at least to do everything possible to save uh, the person that I love. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and that, that gives me strength. And I think that works for everybody. It's just uh, right now Ukrainian army is, is people actively serving in the battle zone is about 700,000 people. So you can imagine, basically, everybody in, in the country has uh, knows you know, somebody, who, knows somebody who, who is serving actively in the, in the military. And then, of course, there are, unfortunately, many families who lost their loved ones. And I think this, this connection to the army is, is very helpful. And I think people are feeling very much, uh, you know, to what extent they depend on the army, but also to what extent the army depends on them. And I think this is what we came to realize that to what extent, you know, the country cannot exist without a strong army. And that is something that, uh, that we try to, to help with. And, uh, and Ukrainians are, are doing wonders in that sense, because, um, again, a probably less known story of, uh, of uh, this, you know, Ukraine's resistance is to what extent this has been a decentralized effort. Because the first, particularly the first month of war, uh, you know, government is always a bit slower to respond, particularly in, you know, when there is, you know, you need to act really fast. And I'm not saying the government was working badly, but there are some things that, that non-governmental organizations, civil society can do better. And in our case, we do have several big non-governmental uh, organizations that have been fundraising for the army. Uh, and, uh, and, and they've been doing miracles. And they did it, like, very, very fast. And... What Ukrainians are doing is, uh, you know, when we were sitting in the bomb shelter on October 10th during attacks, like, and, and people were asking, like, how do you, people from abroad were asking, 
what did you do there? What were you thinking? And so on. I was like, yeah, I was donating to the non-governmental organizations that are helping to the army. And I think this became a national idea that we have to, you know, to stay together, to help the army, and, and this is how we survive. And I think that we just uh, have to keep on explaining that to people, and people understand it again. Because this is so much like people are doing it themselves. It's not someone is forcing them to do it. One of the biggest uh, um, organizations has collected about $4 billion in the first four months of the war. And uh, by end of May, half of the drones that Ukrainian army had were actually bought by civil society organizations. Mm. Which is, uh, I mean, I think it's a bit different now because the government is buying more and, and getting more from, from our partners and so on and so forth. But when there was a need to react very quickly, that is where civil society stepped in. And that is how we actually survived by, you know, many people doing small things. And that is what we try to, you know, to keep on repeating to ourselves, you know. Every person matters, every small contribution matters, uh, you know, no matter what you do, you, you are a barista, you are selling coffee, well, you are working in economy, you are paying taxes, and then taxes go to the army. You know, that is what uh, we are trying to do. But in terms of, of my work as a member of parliament, specifically, because uh, people keep on asking me, like, do you have sessions, and, uh, like, why? <laughs> uh, uh, we do, and, uh, of course, we do pass some legislation, but I think, particularly the first uh, couple of months of war, it was not that important what sort of legislation we were passing. It was the fact that we were there, we were gathering in the parliament's building, we didn't leave the country, we stayed in. That was actually crucially important. You were showing your presence. Yeah, 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 we were showing our presence and, and we were showing that we are there with the people. And we're doing it in different manner, and I think different members of parliament found different ways of, you know, how to represent the people. Like, I concentrated a lot on this international work. Uh, my best, uh, another member of parliament who's my best friend in the parliament, uh, Roman Kostanko, he's, he's used to serve in the military before he got back to the military. He's serving in the south right now. So he hardly ever appears in the parliament itself, but, you know, He's doing a great job himself. Um, there are many MPs who are working in, you know, providing humanitarian aid and relief, uh, coordinating those efforts and so on and so forth. Uh, even without being like, you know, government members, cabinet, cabinet members in your case, right? But uh, even despite the fact that I'm formally in opposition, which doesn't really matter that much in Ukraine right now, I think people have found different ways. Opposition to the Russians. To the Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only thing that matters. So we are trying to do when everybody is doing a little bit, that, at the end, makes a huge difference. Yuri, um, can you help us understand, perhaps, uh, uh, Irina, to um, uh, perhaps some differences between uh, the Ukrainian army and the Russian army in terms of who's serving, how they're serving, how they're led, how they're equipped, and so forth? You know, I must say that I'm not a military expert, so probably my answers are going to be amateurish. <laughs> but I would say, you know, there is a giant difference between the Ukrainian army and the Russian army. The Ukrainian army is really motivated. You know, people volunteer to come to, to the army and defend the country. What we see is happening in Russia when you mobilize, you try to mobilize people, people instead of going to fight, they, they, they flee in the country. So the level of morale is very, very, very different. Um, that's number one. Number two, there is a silver lining in, in this war in the sense that, you know, Ukraine is not formally a member of, of NATO, but de facto it is now a member of NATO. You know, lots and lots of weapons were donated to Ukraine for this. And so this really helps the army to be technologically you know, a step or maybe multiple steps ahead of the Russian army. And we don't have quantities, we don't have as many guns as, as the Russians do, we don't have as many tanks as Russians do. But the quality of military equipment is technologically so much more advanced that we can compensate for the shortages with better quality. Can, can I shortly yeah. add to that? Because, of course, Ukraine is much smaller than Russia, right? But, uh, uh, again, Ukrainian army right now is pretty big. You know, it's, uh, you know, 700,000 people is, is a lot. And, of course, a lot of those people are people uh, who either never served in the army or just did their obligatory training, which is, you know, 
was probably not that you know, specialized and didn't make them into professional military. But the truth is that indeed lots of people volunteered. Actually, the, the single time I cried during the first 24 hours when this all started was when I saw the pictures on the internet of huge queues, like hundreds of people, queuing to recruit to the army. That is like, and, and it's still there. There are still people who are knocking on the door saying, like, I want to, to get mobilized, I want to go to, to the war. But we're saying, like, yeah, you just have to wait because uh, we, we are now like, in the quantity that we, we need in terms of people. So, so this morale uh, is, is a huge factor. That is, that is very much true. And also, uh, of course, Ukrainian army has undergone quite lots of changes and reforms since 2014. I'll refer back to the, to the example of, of my boyfriend. He's, uh, he's actually a doctor. He's a surgeon, a thoracic surgeon. But he did uh, went to serve in the army in 2014-2015. And, and that is when they started to do lots of changes in terms of how medical services are being provided on the battlefront. And they changed it quite a lot according to the NATO standards. They have introduced the better medical help. And that is something that he has been involved in very actively. So now when he looks at how medical help is being provided inside Russian army, he's laughing about this because they're providing medical help like they did in the 70s. And literally like, like the medical kit that they have is from the 70s. Well, what our army has is, is very up-to-date and modern stuff that they got from, from the government or actually from the volunteers who are buying it to them. And, and the truth is, of course, it's, uh, it's still not perfect. It's still, I mean, we need more tanks, we need more of everything. Uh, but indeed, as, as Yuri pointed out, and this is an important thing, is uh, we will never be a bigger army than Russia. But we can win by being a smarter and more innovative army. And that is why what we need is, is more you know, smart, innovative technological equipment. Because we, you know, if we, we are just given the old Soviet equipment, which was particularly at the beginning a huge trend, like we'll just give you the, the, you know, the old Soviet tanks, uh, that's what my partner said. He said, like, yeah, then we're going to be a small Soviet army fighting against a big Soviet army. Yeah. We shall never win like this. We shall only win if we shall be a small but well-equipped modern army. And that is what we're trying to, to help build. What do you need most from the United States? Uh, well, I wouldn't surprise anyone here if I say that uh, we are very nervously watching the elections today. As so are we. Ever, yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah feeling pretty safe saying that uh, here in Berkeley. Um, and uh, uh, of course we are worried because, uh, you know, if, if there is a change in the, in the Congress and uh, different people take power, we don't know what the Republicans' position will be in terms of providing weapons. Um, there are, you know, different signals which we have to wait and see what will happen. Uh, what I'm most concerned of is even best case scenario, if Republicans still say we want to be providing weapons to Ukraine, but you know, there will be more scrutiny. More scrutiny in our case means more delays. And more delays in our case means lives lost. We did have days when we were losing 100 days, 100 people a day. 100 people. 100 people a day were killed. So, uh, so, so we hope that help will be provided. And, and the issues that we need more in terms of uh, weapons now, something I know much more about than I used to. You know. But uh, the air defense system, that is crucial for civilian population and also for the military, of course. Uh, the multiple launcher system, MLRS, multiple launch uh, rocket, rocket system, system right. Um, and tanks. And tanks is something that became a, a very strange discussion. Like, we are still not getting modern combat tanks. We have got the Soviet-style tanks from Poland, Slovakia, and everybody else. But nobody is willing to give us tanks. And that, you know, well, you have provided us with HIMARSes, which can, you know, shoot pretty, pretty far. Like, tanks are not shooting that far. I don't understand, like, this whole blockade about tanks. So maybe you can, I don't know, reach out to your representatives, as they say here in the States, right, and ask them about that. Because, you know, we really need tanks as a way to protect our personnel. That's as simple as that, you know. People inside Soviet tanks are not protected in case it gets hit. People inside the tanks that you have, or Germans have for that matter, uh, are much better protected. So that is what we need. Tanks. Tanks, okay. yeah. Um, uh, when the um, uh, invasion started in February, uh, the, the West um, uh, imposed a number of economic sanctions on Russia. Um, 
How effective have those sanctions been, and can they be made even more effective? Maybe, Yuri, you can take that. Right, so I think, you know, we should start with kind of doing backward induction. Is anybody going to attack Russia militarily? The answer is no. Does the change have to come from... Let's say invade a NATO country. Hopefully they will not do that. But, you know, at this stage, nobody has any plans to invade Russia. If there is a change, it has to come from inside. To make a change, you know, something in the sort of masses or elites or whoever has to change. Right? It has to be an economic lever. Economic sanctions is one of these levers. You know, people say it's not working, it's not doing this, it's not doing that. You look at the facts, and it's clear that sanctions are hurting the Russian economy. You know, people say, you know, the Russian economy is going to have a recession roughly at 5% uh, contraction. It seems like not a big number, but you should be thinking about counterfactuals, where the Russian economy should have been given this high oil prices and where it is now. And then the size of the contraction is going to be more like minus 15%. So it's very significant. You can also see that, you know, the more targeted sanctions are, the more effective they are. For example, how many cars are produced in Russia today? It's only 10% of what they used to produce before the war. Okay, is this effective? Yes, it is effective. You know, you look at the exports of energy, okay? This is where we have problems because, you know, countries like India and China continue to buy Russian oil. This creates a, a loophole that is very hard to close. Now, some people will say, well, you know, this is why, you know, this will never work because you always have these leakages. But I would say to that, that there is no limit to perfection. You can always find ways to, to make sure that, you know, Russia is isolated economically. It cannot import technology. It cannot export energy. Uh, for example, many people don't know, but a lot of Russian oil is transported by uh, Western, you know, oil tankers. You know, why they're doing this? Why it's not uh, closed yet? For some mysterious reason to me, Russian diamonds are still going to Belgium. Why is that? I don't understand that. You know, you can look at all sorts of pockets out there. You can still, you know, those pain points that you can keep pushing. And so, you know, the logic is, again, if you have a rational player, you understand that down the road, you're going to have an economic problem. And eventually, it's going to be a very bad situation for you. You should do backward induction. You should say, okay, I'm going to stop now. But, you know, this is not happening in Russia. They don't still realize how bad it's going to be. And I guess, you know, one benchmark you can keep in mind when you think about these issues, think about, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union. It invaded the, uh, Afghanistan in 1978. The U.S. government imposed lots and lots of sanctions. You know, the Soviet Union could not import uh, technology. They could only export a tiny bit of energy. Okay? Then the 86 energy prices collapse. Soviet Union, the Soviet Union loses a lot of revenue. Okay? 86. In 81, we don't have the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was a much more closed economy. It didn't trade as much as Russia is doing today. So this kind of time clock is going to run a lot faster for the Russian economy. They're eating their reserves now. So, you know, when we talk about the war for attrition, it's not just about helping Ukraine. It's also about making sure that Russia is going to run out of their resources as quickly as possible. So sanctions are working. We just need to ramp it up. You know, if they don't understand it, you know, do it again. We have, one, one go ahead, very yes. small comment about sanctions, not against uh, Russia, actually, but uh, uh, against Iran. And because uh, you were asking about those attacks on energy infrastructure, and majority of those attacks are done by the Iranian drones. And there was a recent uh, investigation uh, by Ukrainian investigative journalists who, who got uh, hold of that drone, Iranian drone, which Iran has sent over to Russia, and the sad fact is the majority of the components of the drone were produced by the United States companies that Iran got a hold of. And I think that is something that needs to be addressed very specifically because those small drones are doing huge damage to the Ukrainian society economics and, and not so much military, but, you know, in terms of it's energy infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, very quickly... Uh, we'll talk a lot about sanctions in terms of oil, energy, and so on, but think about IT sanctions. Uh, we have a recent paper with a group of economists, some of whom are in this room, that you think about the Russian economy, it's running on American and European software. The clouds are you know, here in the U.S. 
uh, Microsoft Word. Maybe it's not an amazing, you know, office package, but you know, it's still you know powering the Russian economy. Think about cell phones. You know, you have Android uh, software system. I'm not an expert there, but presumably you can disable lots and lots of you know functionality for this system. So you can really slow down the Russian economy very, very quickly if you want to. And these are some questions from uh, the audience, and this uh, is a question that does involve energy. Um, uh, what implications does Ukraine's energy insecurity have on future renewable energy use and grid decentralization? Uh, that's a great question, because I think that is uh, one of the great uh, you know, hopes uh, of this uh, huge, terrible energy crisis, that, or crisis, if that's even the right word. Um, is this, that actually more and more people understand to what extent decentralized grid would be better, right? Because right now what they're doing, uh, the, the biggest uh, problem right now is uh, about 50% of Ukraine's electricity is nuclear power. And, and that provides the base load, uh, which has been stable, you know, working properly, and apart from the fact that they captured the biggest nuclear power plant. But they're not targeting nuclear power plants themselves. But they're targeting the, the, I'm not sure about the English word, and the, 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 the transmission stations located near the nuclear power plant. So when that one is down, the nuclear power plant can still produce electricity, but it, it has no way anywhere. to transit it, to transit it, right? If that's, um, so, uh, so, so in that sense, people are starting questioning, you know, we are relying on this, like, one big nuclear power plant. Uh, like, is that smart if it is so vulnerable to a single attack? Not, not the plant itself, but, you know, basically the plant, right? So people are thinking more and more about... Uh, actually, over the summer, there was an increase in, in people who have individual houses who were installing solar panels because they were thinking, like, okay, just in case, I'm going to do this. Um, I also work quite a lot with the Renewables Association in Ukraine. They're seeing great prospects in Ukraine in terms of renewables, uh, uh, because, of, because of that, because people are understanding that renewables, are, apart from being good for the environment and all of that, not a very you know, <laughs> big part of the Ukraine's thinking right now, but it's about energy security, because renewable energy is produced locally, right? And people are getting more and more used to the idea that this is the path forward. And I do think that uh, it will be. I'm seeing lots of interest on the business side, uh, even, even now. They're saying, yeah, probably not today. But if things calm down, we are planning to invest because that is where the future lies. And Ukraine is, is a huge territory. And, and, you know, we can do, particularly on the south, we can do lots of solar energy. Uh, we're actually switching in some t cities uh, from gas to biomass for heating. Uh, again, because it's locally produced. And, I mean, we still produce gas as well, but it's better to use local, you know, resources. Uh, so, so it's actually given me hope that this can be an opening to transit for, for green energy. Uh, maybe something positive something that comes positive. out yeah. of this, uh, this situation. Um, uh, this is an interesting question. What percent of the Ukrainian population do you think supports the continuation of the war? Uh, okay. The way it's formulated is a bit difficult to answer yeah. because, uh, because I want the war to stop. Like today, I don't want the war to continue. Trust me, I'm, I'm you know, that this not a pleasant situation to be in. The question is on what conditions. And, and right now, if you ask people as like, uh, would you agree for the war to stop in case we have to give up part of our territory? Over 90% of people would say no. And uh, it uh, can sound like, oh, you want too much? Well, a, no, it's just the right thing to want. It's, it's our territory, you know, like, which state will you give up in case you... Okay, don't, come, don't start coming up with the funny ideas. But... Uh, yeah, but, but, but the thing is, like, right, it's, it's, A, it's our territory. B, and that is the biggest argument, is, is people who are under occupied territories, are living in terrible conditions. They're being, you know, uh, thrown into jails, they're being tortured, raped. Like, we cannot just agree for that to continue happening just because we want to have electricity all day. I mean, I want to have electricity all day, but also if it comes at a cost of someone being thrown into jail without any court and trial, then it's, it's not the price that I'm willing to, to accept. Um, and, uh, uh, 
and, and issue number three, and, and people keep on asking me that, like, well, what about Crimea? You see, the thing is that uh, Crimea has been annexed uh, almost nine years, eight and a half years ago, yeah. 2014. And since then, Crimea has been used as a basic military base by Russia. They have militarized the, the, the Crimea so much. And basically, they have captured the south of Ukraine because they were holding Crimea since 2014. So even if, if we skip all the, you know, you know, international law arguments and all of that, it's just not smart to allow them to stay in Crimea because that way we will always be in danger of, of yet another invasion. So that is one of the things that we have to remember. Like, even if we skip the, you know, the, the, the nice and, you know, uh, argument, it's just from, from the realistic perspective. We need it back because we don't want to be invaded again from Crimea. Um, uh, we're getting questions also from the live stream. Um, uh, and um, these two are somewhat related. Um, do you think a third party could help negotiate peace? And if so, what might that third party be? Um, and then what happens to Russia <clears throat> after the war? I take the first one and you take the second. Uh, so, if you ask Erdogan, he will say that he can negotiate his way out of this. He's been trying to act as a you know, third-party side who is kind of neutral and you know, trying to make peace. But the reality is this, whoever comes up with the idea, I can negotiate peace, uh, show me a single person in the world who can say, we will make a deal, and I, the third party, will make sure that Putin follows up on what we agreed upon. Like a single person in the world who will say that I will make sure Putin does what he promised to do. You know, even in Russia, for that matter. I don't think there is a single person who can guarantee that Putin will do whatever we will agree upon on doing, right? And because of that, I don't, think, I don't see a way, you know, by negotiating, because nobody can make sure that whatever we agree upon would actually be, you know, followed up and, and fulfilled by, by, by Putin. I want to second what Nina said, you know, think about this invasion. It violated the treaty of friendship between Russia and Ukraine. It violated the Budapest Memorandum. It violated the Helsinki Final Act. It violated the UN Charter and many, many, many other agreements. What makes you think that now he will respect whatever deal he is going to make? I don't think there is any chance this is going to be enforced by anybody and will be treated as you know, a serious negotiation by the Russians. About the future of, um, of Russia, I think we should... Yeah, well, does that mean, between the two of you, um, are you saying that uh, so long as Putin is the head of Russia, there is no possibility for a negotiated peace? Most likely. I mean, there is definitely, like, and I'm saying it very openly, until Putin is alive, we are always in danger. I mean, the process can slow down, we can go into, you know, slower phase of war or anything. But he has no way of stopping, right? If he stops now, that undermines his power inside Russia. And if he doesn't stop, that also undermines his power. So, so he is in a deadlock situation, but he will keep on doing that because he just cannot stop, right? There is no reason for him to stop. So, yeah, as long as he is alive, even if, if uh, there is some, you know, some quieter periods uh, in, on the battlefront, uh, uh, we will always be living under, you know, under the danger of waking up and falling in the morning from missiles attacks. So, unfortunately, yes, we have to wait for a change of regime in Russia, which is, a, you know, we don't know how that will take place and, and who will come instead of him. But... For real, I don't think anybody can trust whatever Putin will promise to, to do at this point. Yuri? Yeah, the, the future of Russia, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but I can just, you know, make a few casual observations to, to put this in the right perspective. I think, you know, World War I ended with a few empires being disintegrated. World War II, again, a few empires disintegrated. The British Empire, the French Empire. The end of the Cold War, another empire disintegrated. You know, every time 
you know, you have a big loss. You know, it may be Russo-Japanese war, or it may be, you know, some other war, or Crimean war, uh, many, many years ago in, in the 19th century. Um, you know, empires disintegrate. Uh, unlike Ultim Lenin, but, you know, he said that Russia is the prison of peoples, and, you know, just another empire. And I think, you know, there is a good chance that, you know, Russia is not going to survive this war as one state. It will be a collection of different states, um, but, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty about how Russia is going to look after this. How can the average person help Ukraine? Um, is there a way to contribute to the Ukrainian army? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> like, um, you know Google? Um, <laughs> we know it. Yeah, you know Google. Um, you go online and Google come back alive. That is the biggest uh, volunteer foundation in Ukraine that is helping the army. They're great. They're like super great. Uh, you can follow them on Twitter. And they're the one who actually provided drones to the army and so on and so forth. Of course, they're not buying tanks because for a single reason, nobody's selling them to them. They are willing to. <laughs> but, but they're great, like for real. I know some members of the team. I know the leadership. They're super great. They're the biggest foundation. All Ukrainians trust them. And, uh, or there are several others that you can uh, find as well that you can donate. Or if you want to help uh, civilians, well, still donate to Come Back Alive because, you know, donating to the army is the best way to protect civilians. That is the fact. But you can also, like, uh, go uh, and find some humanitarian organizations that are doing, uh, you know, humanitarian aid and relief. And the biggest aid and relief uh, in that sense that I would uh, advertise is, is helping establish bomb shelters at schools. I mean, that doesn't sound like something you would think of automatically, but the reality is this. Uh, like, if uh, parents cannot send their kids to school because there is no bomb shelter, they cannot work. Their kids are losing in terms of quality of education. And, you know, it's, it all starts just this vicious circle. So this, this minor issue of, of, you know, just find a local community and say, like, hey, we have $5,000. Help us, you know, refurbish and do some minor, you know, minor repairments in the bomb shelter so that kids would be safe to go there. That's, that's going to be a huge deal for, for, for people. Like, I know myself, my, my son goes to school, which has a good bomb shelter. But I feel for parents whose schools have terrible bomb shelters or don't have bomb shelters at all. That's something that uh, you can help with. You know, obviously, we, we want to think about this as donations because Ukraine is in a very difficult situation. But I want to give you a slightly different perspective. Think about this as investment and investment in global security. You know, Ukraine wants $40 billion from uh, its allies to, to keep the economy running in 2023. It is a lot of money, $40 billion. It's a lot of money. But, you know, think about this in a different way. How much of this money is a fraction of GDP of the U.S., EU, and other countries? It's a tiny fraction of GDP, 0.01% or maybe less than that. How much is that as a fraction of the NATO budget? It's probably like 4%, maybe 3%. It's a tiny fraction. You know, think about this as how much all these European governments and the U.S. as well spend on supporting households um, to deal with high energy prices. Again, it's a small fraction, maybe 5%, 9%. So instead of, you know, treating the symptoms like, oh, you know, energy prices are high because of Russia, you know, think about this as a way to have a solution to this that is going to be lasting. It's not going to be just, you know, giving out money to people to deal with their energy bills. We have to be thinking about more strategically. You know, also think about this as how much it will cost if Ukraine loses and we have a serious arms race between, you know, Russia and the U.S. or uh, U.S. and China. You know, at the height of the Cold War, U.S. was spending more than 10% of GDP on military stuff. In current money, it's more than $2 trillion. You know, think about this, $2 trillion versus $30 billion. And Ukraine has given an astronomical return on, on this investment. Right? So we're taking care of Russian tanks, all this aggression, all this, you know, authoritarian regimes. You know, it's a huge investment. So it's not just, you know, a donation. Think about this as an investment. This is a somewhat related uh, question, um, but apart from economic sanctions, uh, what are your expectations from other countries to support Ukraine? 
Well, did I mention tanks? Tanks. Because <laughs> yeah. that would be that would be great. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, support in terms of weapons is, is crucially important. That is what is indeed making a difference for all of us. And the speed um, with which... And the speed, weapons. yeah, yeah. And then, of course, training of our military personnel is also very important. And it, that has taken place, right? I'm not, I'm not complaining about that, but it just reiterating to what extent that is, uh, that is very much important. Um, maybe I will, uh, from a different perspective, and get back to the sanctions issue, because, of course, as, as Yuri has been talking a lot about economic sanction and how they affect the Russian economy, but then there are also personal sanctions, sanctions against individuals. Uh, and I know some of them have been introduced, but that has taken quite some time. Uh, son of Medvedev, who is the, the former president, uh, of, of kind of president yeah, of, of Russia, who's gone crazy, like, I, probably you don't read him too much, but, because probably most of you don't read Russian, but if you read him, he, guy has gone completely nuts. He's like, he's speaking about getting rid of Satan in Ukraine, and, and you know, fighting gay parades in Donetsk, and like, he's completely nuts. And his son was living in, in uh, was New it, York. in New York, in the US, and he had a visa. Like, why? And I mean, one may say that, you know, human rights arguments, that the children are responsible for the sins of their parents. Well, but my son has to go to the bomb shelter almost every day and skip math or whatever else, you know, in, in his school. Like, my son is bearing this, uh, this, uh, this load. So the, the kids of the Russian elites should not get visas to the United States. And if they do, those should be canceled and they should go back to Mother Russia and really have a serious talk to their parents. Like, why the hell? And, and the reality is that, that they are still studying in the American universities. Mm -hmm. I mean, probably not here at UC Berkeley, I don't know of that, but, but just, just go through the list. This is, this is unacceptable, uh, unacceptable, and this is something that you can still do. And this will have actually a huge effect. Because, you know, people, the Russian elites are so wealthy, it probably will not make a huge difference for them if they lose like even half of their wealth in terms of their daily life, right? But if their kids cannot travel, of, you know, to Italy for shopping or, you know, to go study in American universities, that will actually make a difference for their individual lives. So that is the, you know, not many people are paying attention to that, but that will actually make a difference in terms of putting pressure on the Russian elites. What about the uh, likelihood of war crime prosecutions? Uh, how, do, how do you look at that? Oh, that is... Uh, 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 a lot has been done on that, and actually the Commission on Sexual Crimes that, that I'm, uh, I'm deputy head of uh, is, uh, is also part of this effort. So what we are doing is, we are, no, not, not so much we as members of parliament, but we are helping also in that sense, uh, uh, but the prosecutor's office, police, uh, is doing a lot to document the crimes. Uh, we are getting actually uh, uh, policemen uh, from other EU states who come to help document all the crimes uh, uh, and uh, yeah, trying to collect uh, all the evidence possible. It's, it's a huge number. It's like, you know, you must have seen most recently Izum, which was a month ago, 400 graves, uh, some of them children, some of them, you know, tortured and all of that. Like not a single country would be able to, to document this amount of crimes themselves, so that is something that... Uh, that uh, we are doing uh, with the hope to start uh, to have a big uh, international tribunal, uh, which I'm sure will take place uh, uh, at some point. And it's uh, it's our responsibility, uh, and uh, you know this is what we need to do for, for the victims. We have to do it, even if it take, it's going to take ten years. It's a long time. Yeah, we have to do it. Yeah. We have another question from uh, uh, the audience. Um, uh, how would you evaluate? Uh, Zelensky's performance, um, uh, and I see the ideal president for Ukraine. Do I take it? Right, because I'm not a member of the parliament, <laughs> <laughs> I will say something. <laughs> um, I think he was a surprise to many of us because when he was elected president, many people were wondering if he is qualified to do this job. Um, but in some ways, uh, a key function he has now is, is really to inspire people, communicate with them, send messages. And in, in, in this respect, he was kind of practicing all his life. He's a professional actor. You know, I remember many years ago, somebody was asking Ronald Reagan, 
uh, how can an actor become president? And he said, how can president not be an actor? And so we certainly have this moment where, you know, talking to the people, you know, making sure that messages are getting across, talking to the international community, is probably the highest value added for him. You know, he also realized that he can't run the country, uh, you know, just by himself. He has to delegate. So before the war, he was really plugged into many, many decisions. Now he is more uh, delegating. Uh, and, you know, surprisingly, people know how to do their jobs. And, and so in some ways, it, it's, it's really helping everybody to uh, have a division of labor. And so he's doing communication and other people are doing other decisions. I would, uh, I would actually agree with everything that Yuri said. And, uh, uh, yeah, indeed, uh, because I'm representing the opposition political party, <laughs> as I mentioned. But that, A, that doesn't matter anymore, because as Janet said, we, we, you know, we're all in opposition to Russian aggression, and that is the only thing that matters. And, and indeed, we are all speaking in one voice. And that is not because of some censorship or because I'm being forced to say things, but because the situation is pretty black and white. You know, when, when I go abroad uh, and, uh, yeah, I do communicate with the government, I ask for, like, what is the list of equipment we need for energy or what is the type of uh, tanks that we need or anything, you know. But, uh, but, but the general messages are so obvious for all of us that, uh, you know, it just we all speak in one voice. Uh, not, uh, some people were asking me, like, you are saying the same things, like, are you being forced to? I was like, yeah, you don't know me if you think that anybody can force me to say something that I don't believe in. But the reality is that, yeah, I, I do think that the president has done a pretty good job. Probably the smartest administrative decision he has taken is appointing the top uh, military guy, General Zaluzhny, who has done miracles. I think that that was the smartest decision, in terms of, apart from the communication part, right? But in terms of, of uh, you know, running the country, that was the smartest thing he did. Uh, he appointed a very strong general to run the army. I don't think we would have survived without this uh, this general. So yeah, uh, despite me being in opposition, he's uh, he's doing well right now. We have time for one uh, one uh, last comment from each of you, um, and let me just uh, ask each of you if if you have one central point about. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and where things stand and what you see the future as that you'd like this audience to take from today's panel, what would it, what would it be? Yuri, we'll start with you. It's a very difficult question in one sentence. Um, I would say this, you know, many people think of war as being, you know, a war in a distant country about people who we know very little about, in the words of Chamberlain, you know, when he basically gave the Czechoslovakia to, to Hitler. Uh, you should not think that. You know, that war is a lot closer to all of us than many of us think. You know, this is not just about Ukraine. This war can touch us here in California, it can touch us in, in Europe, anywhere. So we have to be thinking of this as not a Ukrainian problem, it's really a global problem. You have stolen what I was about <laughs> to say. But, but indeed, I do think that, you know, it took me two days to travel here. You know, California is very far away from, from, uh, from Ukraine. Uh, so the question is, uh, why should we care? And, and I think that there are two reasons why people should care. First, because this war just violates the very basic principles of human existence, right? Nobody should be afraid of, of getting raped by, by a soldier who just invaded your country. That just goes against any, you know, basic principles of human lives. That is just wrong on many levels. And, and what we are fighting for is, is, is the righteous cause, just like Americans were in your, in, in your war against the Brits. And you very much relied uh, also on, on, you know, on support of, of France at that time, right? And, and, uh, and I think that that is uh, important to remember, that uh, also the United States has been uh, in a period of uh, its history relying on, on support from abroad. I'm not saying you have to pay back. I'm just saying that there are situations of when, uh, when the very basic principles of life are at stake, and then everybody should get involved. And, and, and the second argument is this. Uh, this war just is not just violating the very basic principles of human life and, and you know, coexistence. It also violates the very principles of international order. Right? If, if we allow Russia to do what it is doing to Ukraine right now, what is there to stop Russia from saying, like, hey, what was our deal with Alaska? 
we don't like it anymore. We probably should get it back. You know, we can also invade uh, whatever else country. Or, you know, any other country can say the same. If we don't respect the sanctity of Ukraine's borders, what is there to respect the sanctity of any borders at that matter, right? So I think that this is also important. We are also fighting for preservation of the world order, of very basic principles of the world order, at least. Uh, um, and that is why, uh, yeah, we very much hope that the world will, will continue supporting us because we are fighting for the, for the whole globe now, not just for ourselves. Well, I think you have the support of all of us here. Thank you so much for your comments and for coming here. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 